All right, well, good morning. <clears throat> Look at the massive flock out here. It's, it's good to see you. Thank you for braving the elements and setting your clock back. Uh, I almost made a tragic mistake last night. Karen and I both went to bed. I laid down and had actually started drifting away into sleep and realized after telling everyone to turn your clock forward, I did not set my alarm forward. But thankfully she did. So anyway, uh, and we woke up extra early this morning. We're glad to see you today and hope you've had a good week. This is a hard message. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I've given you a warning for a couple of weeks. Some people actually told me I can't come to this uh, because of the nature of what you're going to deal with. And I totally understand that. But they wanted to uh, watch the recording. And you all understand when trauma happens in your life, certain points, things will trigger you. And you understand what a trigger is. A trigger is something that so captivates your mind and reminds you of something that you can't focus. And so sometimes people may get triggered, and I understand that. We've had family that have dealt with issues like this. However, this is in God's Word, and I feel like it's something we need to deal with because it happens to so many people. And to avoid an issue like this is to not address a real-life need. So I've prayed about this, and I've, God gave me peace and direction so I'm going to tackle this morning one of the toughest issues and perhaps one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to deal with, and that is going from the mountaintop down to the valley, how to handle the issue of sexual abuse. Now, if you read Genesis chapter 34, God's name is not mentioned in this chapter, and different commentators have different opinions as to why this happens. However, God does show up, and by the way, he is there the whole time while all of this is transpiring. God is allowing this to take place for an interesting reason. I'm going to give you the meaning of the text. We're going to read the whole chapter in a minute. But here is basically the concept. God was using Jacob, Jacob the trickster, the rascal, and God was taking this man and turning him into a worthy partner to bring the Messiah into the world. But during Jacob's life, you and I have seen this throughout our study, Jacob is, he's a rascal. I mean, there's no other way to put it. He's a trickster, he's a liar. He just got through lying to his brother Esau when he told him, I'm coming right behind you, and he went the opposite direction. But Jacob was supposed to go back to Bethel, but he doesn't make it all the way, and he lands in a fertile crescent called Shechem. Now, the people who dwelled in Shechem, this would be kind of like going to Las Vegas, Nevada, down on the Strip and saying, this is a nice, prosperous place. This is where I want to move my, my family. Now, can you imagine what would happen? So the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Termites, and all the rest of the ites lived in this area. And this was a very problematic place. God never told Jacob, dwell in Shechem. Jacob settles down there and buys a house. He's going to plant his barns there and his animals and his livestock. God told him to go to Bethel. But Jacob stopped short. And there's a powerful lesson there for us. Sometimes we can go somewhere for prosperity for our family. And we end up paying more than the job is worth. Money and prosperity is not everything, is it? when you, we put our family in that place. But nevertheless, whether you put your family in that place or not, Sometimes you'll be found. So just a couple of initial thoughts before we look at the text. And this is so true. If life experience teaches us anything, it's basically this. When you're on top of the mountain, enjoy it. Because there's probably a valley coming. And so as God's people, you know, we don't live on a high. Because life is real. Yesterday we were at a funeral. Karen and I drove to North Carolina, the land of beauty they have already mowed their grass once or twice. The trees are in full bloom. Just gorgeous and beautiful. But we were there because of a death. And oftentimes life hits us that way. and You just never know when it's going to come to us. But even though we know there's valleys, we shouldn't fear them in our life. But rather we should face them and face them with God's strength because he'll give us the courage and the hope that we need to get through any valley we face. And by the way, today's message is certainly a valley. <clears throat> and when you're in a valley or you know someone that's in a valley, I can't say anything more important than this. Never underestimate 
the value of your presence in someone's life when they go through difficulty and struggle. Your words probably will never fix their pains. But your presence will be amazing. Just being there. Sometimes when we say things, we mess up. But just being there and letting people know that we care for them is perhaps one of the most wise things that we can do for people who are hurting. So I just wanted to share that with you before we get into this passage. Genesis 34, you can either turn there in your Bible or you can look on the screen. This is what the text reads. One day, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. Now, I'm going to have to stop here because insert a little culture. Back in this day, a young unmarried woman did not travel without the accompany of her family or an older male for different reasons. For the same reason, you wouldn't let your 13 to 15-year-old daughter walk through the streets of Chicago at night, or at least I hope you wouldn't. But in some way and in somehow, Jacob, uh, who had fathered this girl through Leah. Do you all remember who Leah was? The unfavored wife. She was the last child that Jacob had. He had four wives, if you remember. Two were concubines, but the other two was Rachel and Leah, and Leah was the one who was not favored. This girl comes from the mother who is not favored, which seems to indicate that probably Jacob did not pay as much attention to his daughter as he should. And by the way, back in this culture, women, girls were not valued like boys. And they were oftentimes shunned. They were sometimes sold. They were used as ways to make connections with families and other tribes. So Dinah here is this wandering teenager who probably has not a lot of parental guidance. And she goes out to deal with, uh, see the Hivites. These would be some wild women, by the way. She was going out to make friends and there was probably no connection, no understanding of her parents in her life. That is a supposition. But the way the text reads, it kind of leads us to think that Jacob was really not involved in her life, okay? And by the way, God's Word doesn't make patriarchs the heroes. It shows their sin. Just like we as parents sometimes neglect our children, We're not involved in their life. We're busy in our career. We're busy in our life. And we kind of shun our children when they need us the most. This is basically exposing what happens here. So she wanders off. And she goes to see the young women of the area. But the local prince, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, saw Dinah. He seized her and raped her. The ESV says... Uh, that he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. So you get the idea. He saw this young girl. He was a Hivite, and this is what they did in that land, by the way. He grabbed her, and he took advantage of her. Now, when you go on and read the text, but then, the opposite of what we would expect to be true, he fell in love with her. Now, if you contrast this story with 2 Samuel, where... One of David's children had a terrible relationship with one of his half-sisters. After he had longed for her and he lay with her, he hated her. But in this instant, the Hivite fell in love with Dinah. And there's this warning danger. What What is the warning that the reader of the ancient text should be seeing here? You now have this dangerous mixture of the Israelites with the Canaanites. Okay, so this is what, if I were teaching you this class, this would be the theological message. But we're going to get into the pastoral side of it. The theological message is there was this danger of the Messiah's lineage being linked up here with the Hivites and the Canaanites. And God will eventually intervene. But let's read the rest. He seized her and raped her, but when he fell in love with her, he tried to win her affection with tender words. He said to his father, Hamor, get me this young girl. I want to marry her. So Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But since his sons were out in the fields herding his livestock, he said nothing until they returned. 
Now this could have been days, it could have been weeks, because oftentimes when they take their cattle out, they would go for a far distance and they would stay with them. The point was, Jacob did not see this as important enough to go get the boys and tell them immediately that something had happened to their family. It's almost like he's pushing it off. He's not wanting to deal with it. So, what happens? He said nothing until they returned. Hamor, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Jacob's family, something that should have never been done. And by the way, when Moses writes this, he makes it very clear this was a violation of what was right. Hamor tried to speak with Jacob and his sons. My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter. Now, can you imagine somebody telling you that? Excuse me for a moment. He said, please let him marry her. In fact, let's arrange other marriages too. You give us your daughters for our sons and we will give you our daughters for your sons. Now, what would you say if somebody told you that? Listen to what he goes on to say. And you may live among us. The land is open to you. Settle here and trade with us and feel free to buy property in the area. Then Shechem himself spoke to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me and let me marry her, he begged. I will give you whatever you ask. No matter what dowry or gift you demand, I will gladly pay it. Just give me the girl as my wife. But since Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and his father Hamor. So now you're seeing Jacob come out in his children. Okay? So mom and dad, every time we get mad at our children for telling lies and doing things they shouldn't, let me give you a good challenge. Are you ready? Look deep into their eyes and realize they are a reflection of you. Jacob's children are repeating exactly what their father did. Now they're getting ready to trick someone. But since Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and Hamor, and they said to them, We could possibly allow this because you're not circumcised. Or we could not possibly allow this because you're not circumcised. It would be a disgrace for our sister to marry a man like you. But here's a solution. If every man among you will be circumcised like we are, then we will give you our daughters and we will take your daughters for ourselves. We will live among you and become one people. And the reader would be going, "Uh uh-oh. But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we'll take her and be on our way. Hamor and his son Shechem agreed to their proposal. And Shechem wasted no time acting on this request, for he wanted Jacob's daughter desperately. So Shechem was a highly respected member of Congress. Can I put it that way? He was in the White House. He probably had a Senate seat or somewhere like that. So what did he do? He went with his father, Hamor, to present this proposal to the leaders at the town gate. This would be like our Capitol Hill. And here's what he says to all of the voters and constituents. These men, these Israelites, are our friends, they said. Let's invite them to live here among us and trade freely. Look, the land is large enough to hold them. We can take their daughters as wives and let them marry ours. But they will consider staying here and becoming one people with us only if all of our men are circumcised just as they are. But if we do this, all their livestock and possessions will eventually be ours. You all see the deception going on on both sides here? So come and let us agree to their terms and let them settle here among us. So all the men in the town council agreed with Hamor and Shechem, and every male in town was circumcised. Now guys, 25 and above, you want to imagine with me what this would be like? Now, if you don't know what this means, you'll have to go ask someone what this is. But this is called P-A-I-N, pain. They agree to do this. And so what do Jacob's sons do? Three days later, that's about the time the maximum soreness 
would take place. And by the way, you probably couldn't run, you probably couldn't jump, and you probably couldn't get away. But three days later, when their wounds were still sore, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and entered the town without opposition. Yeah. And they slaughtered every male there, including Hamor and his son Shechem. They killed them with their swords. Then they took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived. Finding the men slaughtered, they plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, everything that they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth and plundered their houses. They also took all their cattle and wives and led them away as captives. Afterward, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have ruined me. You've made me stink among all the people of this land, among all the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are so few that they will join forces and crush us. I will be ruined and my entire household will be wiped out. Now some commentators have pointed out here that the only thing Jacob was worried about was his own reputation. They say that since he didn't mention his daughter or anything about her, he was only in it for himself. Now let me just say that if you go on and read the rest of the chapter, in chapter 35, uh, and by the way, this is the last word of his sons, why should we let him treat our sister like a prostitute? So Jacob's worried about his image, the sons are worried about their sister, and now you have another big family mess going on. How do you deal with this tragedy that happened in life? And by the way, let me just say that this happens so often. There are so many different types of abuse. Uh, but back to this story before I get to the pastoral side. How does God provide for Jacob and his family? Jacob was worried that because of this incident, God would not protect him and the Canaanites would come in. If you read down in chapter 35, God's presence actually comes and puts a terror in the Canaanites and all of the surrounding people so that they would not attack Jacob. So the, the lesson here was God intervened despite all of this sin and this problem and this issue and God's plan was moving ahead. But on a pastoral side, when we think about this, we start looking at abuse, the numbers, the kinds of abuse. And by the way, this is a broad picture it's hard to paint just one little issue because there's so many parameters, so many layers. There's so much uh, different types of abuse. There's verbal, where parents constantly you know, demean their children. You were an accident. You should have never been born. I wish we'd never had you. You blah, blah. And children identify themselves with this type of verbal abuse. You can never do anything. You'll never do... I read stories this week of parents who were talk terrible to their children. You know, verbal abuse is real. And it's a struggle to try to overcome. But let me just say, if you're victimized, if you like to use that word by verbal abuse, do not find your identity in the definition of, of other people. You've got to find it in the Lord. You are not what other people say you are. You are what God says you are. There's a different kind of abuse other than ver verbal, and that's physical. This is perhaps extreme cases where people are beaten, and I know you all know stories. I'm going to spare you all the details. But physical abuse in life, uh, it is a horrible, horrible thing. And by the way, someone sent me some research this week talking about prenatal, when children are in the womb, how they're impacted by fighting and screaming and yelling in the home, even when the child is not born yet, it impacts. Studies have shown that children are impacted by the type of uh, environment they're in even before their birth. Astounding, isn't it? But we come to the third and the one we're going to address today, and that's the issue of sexual abuse. Now, Dinah here was apparently uh, raped and this issue is very staggering. I want you to hear me for a moment. 
Statistics have repeatedly shown that one out of three girls and one out of four boys experience, experience some form of sexual abuse in childhood. Now I want you to pause for a moment. If I count around this room at all of our girls, all of our ladies, and I begin to count, that means that one out of three of you have had this happen. And then if I count among all of our men, I can say that one out of every four has had this happen. And normally, the statistics show that this abuse occurs before the age of 18. And it usually occurs within somebody that is known to you in your life. That is staggering. And for the church not to address an issue like this is for the church not to address an issue like divorce. It is just unexcusable because it is so predominant, but yet it is so personal and so raw that sometimes we don't want to talk about this. So in order to be transparent and to be honest, you know, and by the way, as a speaker, as a pastor, you have to be transparent and honest. I can honestly tell you that as a child before 18, I am the statistic. Not only me, but also my family. Uh, and my own brother was a statistic. And this is real. It happened to me. The problem is, we don't want to talk about this because we feel such shame. We feel such identity. We think that when, when we admit that this happens to us, that somehow or another people look at us differently. But I want to be as honest and as open as I can this morning. If you bottle this up in your life and you don't deal with it, and it continues to hold you in bondage, you will be captive to the enemy the rest of your life. So, as I speak this morning, I'm speaking largely out of experience and largely out of over 20-some years in the pastorate, the number of people who have came and shared about their life and how, how much in bondage they've been. We want to set people free today. And by the way, there's hope at the end of this message, so hang on. But we have to get there, okay? So it takes, this was staggering to me, it takes an average of 11 to 15 years for someone to talk about or report what has happened to them. So let's put the math on it. If something happens to a child at 10, normally it would take them to the age of 21 or perhaps 30 before they are ready or able or feel the need to get this out. So they have lived through all of their life not being able to share what has happened to them. And I have a feeling, by the way, that if we opened up the floor and we were not on air today, it would be hard to tell what would come out of this room. I was invited to speak at a men's conference in North Carolina one time, and I went. I had a whole message on something else. God led me to talk about sexual abuse in children, and I told them my story. I don't know how many men were there. I, I can't even count the number. When I gave an invitation at the end of that service, there wasn't no room around the entire altar and down the aisles of the men who had come forward. Staggering. Staggering. There's hope. Now, what are some issues that we're going to address here? Uh, and by the way, one of the issues is, if this has truly happened to you, I'm going to give you some advice in a moment about what you should do and how you should seek some help. But I have I broke this down into three sections. Lessons for parents, lessons for abusers, and lessons for the abused. And I'm going to hurry my way through them without a lot of comment. But this is available. You can go back online and get it if you want it. You'll have to go back and watch it. But all of this information is there, and you can go back and see it. But here they are, quickly. What are some lessons for parents? If you're a mother and father, grandmother or grandfather, let me share this piece of wisdom with you. First of all, do not think that abuse can't happen in your family. I don't care if you're in ministry. I don't care if you're in law enforcement. I don't care if you're a top executive. 
or I don't care if you haul the garbage off. Abuse can and does happen in families just like yours. Do not think that you are untouchable. And by the way, don't think that just because you talk to your children about it, that it won't happen. It can, and it does, and it will. So just know up front that it can happen in your own home. The second lesson we should learn is we as parents have to learn to build strong relationships, especially with our teenage children. Uh, sometimes we, we expect teens, and I hate when I hear this, well, they're going to rebel. No, they're not. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, to expect a teenager to rebel. That's foolishness. Do you realize that just a few years ago, that when a child turned 12 to 13, they were expected to turn into a young man or a young woman? They were never expected to rebel. They were expected to take a mantle and become a man, become a woman. Where did we miss the boat? So we don't just turn them loose and let them sow their wild oats. We begin to invest in their life, talk to them about their life, be involved with them to a level to where our kids can share with us what's going on in their life. Now parents, let me tell you something. Right there has changed your parenting. That... That has changed your parenting and everything about your life. And you can look at the statistics on what people look at and what they see. And we live out what we look at. Okay, so if we wonder why we live in such an, an age and why these numbers have skyrocketed, look no further. Because... It can be used for evil or it can be used for good. And it's, it would be scary to know what your children look at. But I would encourage you as a parent, get involved. The third piece of advice is this. Your advice as a parent will be listened to only at the level that your love is felt. You know, our children go through different stages. And as they grow up, they, when they're 15 and 16, they don't want us to treat them like they're three and one of the reasons that they rebel against us as parents is because we do not adapt our parenting mode. If, if we treat our 16-year-old uh, son or daughter like we did when they were five, uh, whether that be insulating our children from the world or isolating them or talking to them in certain ways, instead of helping them and treating them more like an adult, they will grow up and hate their family. And so we have to learn as parents to adapt. And by the way, this is nasty. This is messy. I mean, they're going to make mistakes and we're going to wish we had kept them uh, three until they were 30 and then let them out and they'd be fully mature. But it doesn't work like that. And so, but, but our kids, I have discovered this, our kids will listen to us to the level that we feel like we love them. Are we doing what we tell them? Are we don't doing that just for our family image? And just so that they make us feel good? Or are we actually doing this and getting involved in their life because we love them for the person that they are? And we're sharing this truth with them because they are not my identity. My children are not my identity. I hope yours are not your identity. But somehow or another, we, we think that. And we think that if we have a child that is a rebel or something happened and they don't listen, you know, that, 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 that determines who I am, we're thinking wrong. I know some great families that have raised some heathen. And I know some bad families that have had some great kids that come out of them. The soul of the child is his own. Take what God has given and develop it to the best of our ability. Love and be involved in their life. Do not ignore what happens to your kids, parents. Talk to them. If they start sharing things or you start seeing behavior, I wrote down some warning signs, by the way. Secretive about who they're talking to or meeting. Sexual knowledge beyond what is age-appropriate. Dramatic personal 
personality changes, uh, excessive amounts of uh, cash, new expensive things that people buy them, other issues, I'm not going to read all these, sudden presence of older boyfriends or girlfriends in their life, wanting to isolate from you, not letting you be involved in their life or seeing what's on their phones, skipping classes or school, uh, sexually acting out, running away from home, doing all kinds of bad behavior. When you start seeing issues like that as a parent, you better have the red flags up and really start investigating and talking. Because as I told you, when something happens, it takes 11 to 15, sometimes 18 years for the truth to come out. That's a long time to grow up with dealing with something like that only internally. And by the way, that is one of the reasons there is so much problem when it is finally known. This is hard stuff. When you do find out, be willing to report and place blame where it belongs. This is one of the hardest issues when a family realizes there's been abuse or something. Because of the stigma and the shame that it may bring upon the family, sometimes people would rather bottle it and stuff it than they would deal with it. And I'm going to tell you that is disastrous. You want to know why Jacob's two boys, Shechem and Levi, took vengeance upon the people who violated their daughter? Here's the reason. Because their father did nothing. He did nothing. If it hadn't been for those two boys, most commentators believe Jacob would have went into an alliance with the Hivites. Now, we'll never know that until we get to heaven and ask what the possible might have been, but there was intervention. But nevertheless, be willing to report it. And if you don't deal with the issue, your children will. And they will either do it in anger or revenge, or it will impact their life by addiction. There's all kinds of actions that come out of not dealing with the issue. So let me encourage you. Take this advice, write it down, pray over it, think about it. I know I could add more to it. And then finally, if something ever happens to one of your children, as I said earlier, your presence and your support are the most important action you can give. You can't take back what happened. But you can be there and tell them you're going to be there for them and with them through the entire process and let them know you'll never leave them. So mom and dad, it's the best I could do in this short time, but take it down. Now what if you're the abuser? And by the way, it's, you, just, you never know who listens. We have people listen to us online. Sometimes we will have hundreds of views on videos even next year. So, believe it or not, abusers will come and view church services because they have such guilt on their conscience. They know what they're doing is wrong, but somehow in their human nature and in their lust, even while they know it's wrong, it's almost like there's this passion that they can't stop. So if you are an abuser or an abuser is watching this or you know this, here are some lessons that you should learn. Stop it. Right now. Stop. Seek help immediately. What do I mean by that? Go and tell someone what you're doing. It, it may seem like you cannot do that, but you must. You cannot keep that to yourself. That is the enemy's way of keeping you in bondage the rest of your life. You have to share that. Third, own your sin without excuses and be willing to pay the full consequences under the penalty of the law for what you've done. If you're an abuser and you've done that, then you need to own it and you need to be willing to pay the consequence for your sake, for the person's sake that you've done wrong to. Be honest. 
and deal with it. Express deep remorse and sorrow for those you've wronged. Do not blame anyone except yourself. Don't blame the victim. Don't blame the culture. Take the blame personally. This will help your victim and whoever it is that's been abused be able to heal so much quicker. Own it. And then finally, seek God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus. There is hope for abusers. Now, I have had some Christians get angry at me for saying that. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus died for sexual abusers. He offers grace, hope, forgiveness, redemption, and cleansing for abusers. And let me remind you of something lest we get too high, but for the grace of God, you and I could have been placed in a place in our life where we were the abuser. So never ride a horse too high because it could be you. And then there are some lessons for abused. I don't like to call you a victim or me a victim because I'm not a victim. Okay? I like to call this a person who has been wronged. How do you deal with this? if this has happened to you. And let me say, you know, there's all kinds of layers and webs here. But if this has happened to you or someone in your family that you know, you have to come to terms with it. I mean, there's only so far that you can push that. Now, there may be certain cases, by the way, where people, this has happened to them. Maybe it was years and years ago. They have resolve this issue, they put a lid on it, and they just want to take that part of their life and bury it and never deal with it. Maybe their abuser's dead. I mean, there could be different issues here, so I'm not painting with a broad brush. I'm simply saying, if it's something that gnaws at you, and it's something that is destroying your marriage, uh, your intimacy, or other issues in your life, your whatever, you've got to deal with it. How do you do that? Well, uh, you find someone that you can talk to and you confide in them. But silence and isolation will never make it go away. Somehow or another, when something traumatic happens to us, we feel like if I can just hold up, think about it, and pray about it long enough, then I can talk myself out of anything ever happening or what, and I can just make it go away. Listen, it will never go away it's part of your story it's part of your life and now that it's in your life you have to deal with it if you do not deal with it in honesty and sharing with someone it will perhaps possibly come out in different ways maybe it comes out in different forms of anger sometimes it comes out in forms of addiction we had a family member who had had this happen to them young in life. I'll just tell you the story real quick. It was a young man, and his, his, one of his dad's tax consultants uh, prayed. He was a predator. He prayed upon this man's boy. And unbeknownst to this man, this person had violated his son in a horrible way. By the way, this is my brother that I'm talking about. This man even tried to violate me, a vicious monster. And had told my brother, if you tell your dad what I did to you, he will kill me. He will go to jail and you will never see your dad again. You see what a monster that is? So my brother, thinking he was protecting my father, never said a word. I know my mom is watching this and it's terrible on her. But this is the truth and if you don't know this... How can you ever stop this? And so here's this boy growing up thinking he's protecting his father and wondering why his father continually goes around this man. Because he can't say. So children, never ever be afraid to talk to your parents or your grandparents. You talk to your mom and dad because they love you more than anybody else in this world and you can share your heart and soul with them. But this boy didn't. And he pushed it off and pushed it off. It turned into rebellion against his parents. 
It turned into a very, very strained and difficult marriage. It ended up in addiction. And till this day, I'm convinced this is one of the major catalysts in his life. His son, we found him overdosed last Monday. And my brother cannot be found to tell him that, my, that his own son overdosed and is now dead because he's running. You have to deal with the issue. Isolation and seclusion, drugs, alcohol will not fix the problem. But that's what it leads to. Be willing to open your heart to Jesus and then a trusted counselor or a friend, somebody you can talk to. Because if you don't do this, you will be right in the enemy's territory and he will work you over. And by the way, folks, when this happens, life is hard. It's hard. Deal truthfully with the issues and the feelings of your heart. When you finally sit down and you start talking through this and stop trying to mask it. Let it out. Tell someone the issue and the problem and let them help you as you are talking through the issue that is healing. Did you know that? The way you heal from trauma like this is by sharing your story. It's just like addiction to anything else. You will never defeat it alone. You have to get someone else involved in it. This is how God designed the human image of God. You have to have relationship. Just as the Father, Son, and Spirit work together, we as human beings have to have someone else in our life. You cannot win addiction alone. And you cannot get over abuse alone. You need someone who knows and is able to share your story. So deal truthfully with it when you face it. And then realize, so important, realize that healing will not be an instant process. It will take time and more time and more time. When you confess and you share, that is like the opening of the floodgate. But that doesn't mean it's going to be healed, okay? Don't even think that. It's not going to happen. But through a process of time and sharing and some wise counsel on how to deal with this, it's kind of like breaking a bone. When you break a bone, it doesn't heal immediately. It has to be set in place, and that's painful, isn't it? It has to have a cast on it. It has to be squeezed I mean, there's a lot of pain there in that initial trauma. But over a period of time, that bone begins to mend and heal. And you know, they actually say that after a bone is broken and put back together, that it's stronger in the break where the scar tissue and everything came over it than it is in other parts. God can take this in life and God can use it for His glory, even though it's horrible and it's terrible. And by the way, don't ever tell somebody that's abused, well, that was God's will. Shut up. That's horrible. Don't ever say that. Never. That is never God's will. Never say that. doesn't mean God can't heal, but it's not His will. And then again, if you're an abused person, be willing to report what happened to you and place the blame where it belongs. And that's a whole other story. Now, where's the hope? Thank the Lord for the hope. Turn to Isaiah chapter 61 very quickly. Isaiah chapter 61. When Jesus came to this earth, and by the way, next week we're going to start a new series on hope. Hope. Isn't that wonderful? I had to do something after this message. A, a four-part series on the resurrection. The hope of Jesus. Do you realize Jesus can give us hope? 
Isaiah chapter 61, this is a verse that Jesus quoted when he was in a synagogue in Nazareth. He opened a scroll, a huge big scroll, and came right to this section and began to read. Listen to what our Lord Jesus said, why he came to this earth. He came to free, to vindicate, and to comfort. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me, are you ready, to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus can free us from the bondage of all of the abuse. We have a new identity. We are the child of the living God. We are the brother of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? He calls us His brothers, His sisters. And He is able to make us free to bind the brokenhearted, to give liberty to the captive. A captive is a person who is in bondage, whether it's in thought, action, or deed to what has happened. He can free us from that. We are no longer identified by that. Notice what he goes on to say, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Wow, what a description of someone who has been abused and hiding it for years. Bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. By the way, let me assure you of this, and I assure you of it. No abuser will ever, ever get away with it. They may get away in this life. They will not get away in the next. And anytime I talk to someone about this, I always remind them of Jesus' words that a man is better to tie a huge millstone around his neck and go out to the deepest part of the ocean and drop it in than he is to offend one of the little ones of him and push them away. Eternity is not going to be fun for an abuser that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. But Jesus will bring vengeance. He will vindicate you. Maybe not in this life, but He will before eternal life is actually in place. And then finally, He can comfort you. To comfort all who mourn. And to grant those who mourn in Zion, notice what he does. Notice the reversal. He gives them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. You know, when someone was in mourning, they would go out and get ashes and pour all over their head. Instead of putting ashes all over their head, what does he do? He gives them a headdress. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The idea here is instead of a stench, he brings a wonderful fragrant smell. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And finally, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness. An oak is something that's grounded, it's planted, it's firm, it's stable, and it can weather a storm. God can make roots in our life. He doesn't want to make us a bramble bush. And God can take the pain and the trauma and the torture that goes on in our life and what can He do with it? He can turn that around and He can use it. And He can make us stronger. And I'm convinced that that is exactly what God wants to do in all of our lives today. Do you know Christ as your Savior? I hope you do. There's hope for you. If you don't know Him as your Savior, He extends His arm of grace. There's hope for you. Reach out to Him. Father, thank You so much for Your Word this morning that gives us hope and helps us in our time of need. And Father, I want to pray this morning for those here, anyone who may watch, may see this. It's so hard to be open and transparent and honest about what happens in life. But You call us to do that and to face the things and the bad that has happened in life. To know that you can redeem that. And I pray for the hearts of anyone listening 
that may have experienced this in their life. And I hope they're completely free from it. But if they're not, Father, I pray that this is a challenge in their life to be able to address this, to get it out and open before you, most of all. And I pray that you would bring someone in their life they could share with and talk to and to help them to begin the healing process so that they can help someone else. Because surely if one in three girls and one in four boys are impacted by this, surely we are surrounded by people living a life of secrecy who need others who have hearts of compassion and words of grace and wisdom and a Savior who can free us, comfort us, and we know will vindicate us. Help us to share you, Jesus, with them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing this morning, I want to ask you a question. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? I just feel led to do this. Nobody peeking, nobody looking. Everybody's head bowed and eyes closed. If something happened to you in your life and you've never said anything to anyone or you've never shared, it's not that I want to know. And I'm not going to ask you to look at me. But I am going to ask you to take this moment of silence Share it with the Lord and ask Him if He'll give you the courage to do what you need to do. And Father, I pray you'll hear the prayer and answer it. And now with your head still bowed and your eyes closed and not one soul looking around, if you want to make it known to me that something like this happened and you want to pray and you want me to pray for you, I would just ask you to look at me and you can put your head right back down. Let me make eye contact with you. Anyone? Okay. Father, you know the heart. I pray you to give grace comfort and healing. And thank you for the privilege we have to come to you with our needs. Thank you that you're, you're there to help us in a time of need. And give us hope. Thank you that we have hope in Jesus. And we ask your blessings on our life and on the lives of each person impacted by this and give them victory over it, we do pray. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how hard this message was to preach. I can't, I can't tell you. I wanted to preach 20 things beside this. So, I hope it was helpful to you. And I uh, hope you can help somebody. Okay? God bless you.